which is, I think, the essence of the problem, and that is how do we design? So there's no harm in sketching a few things down and doing that stuff, but we simply don't have all of the information that we need at the beginning to make all of the right decisions forever. It's just not, it's not possible. They're the five principles. Hasten slowly, make decisions that give you options, execute mindfully and with intent, find an experienced river guide or two. And then the fifth one is that show gratitude because it repays you with dividends. Dan Palmer here, welcoming you back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, episode 63. This is a really beautiful conversation with a friend and ex-client of mine, John Carruthers, who has um, kindly come on the show to, to share five insights or principles he's distilled from his four or five years of developing a 70-acre property in central Victoria. Really, really beautiful. I was touched. I was nourished by the conversation, and I hope you will be too. Now, before we enter the conversation with John, I wanted to celebrate with you for today is the launch of the six-week in-house DIY crowdfunding campaign for the Reading Landscape Documentary Film Project. Some of you may know that seven, eight, nine years ago, whatever it was, I, I started um, getting David Hongren to tag along and I read landscape on some of the design projects I was consulting to. I was so blown away with, with David's extraordinary capacity. I mean, I remember the first time my spinal cord was quivering for seven hours afterwards that I started to, just in an amateur way, get footage for clients and just felt like it was, it was important to capture the stuff. And then by and by, my dear friend David Marr, who's a filmmaker, got into the conversation. We started getting fully professional quality footage and it was after that even that the idea of hang on what are we doing this for let's make a documentary film emerged and it's actually happening we're committed to it it's going it's to happen it's very 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 thrilling very exciting and we've put together some really neat teaser clips to share as part of this campaign there's a free zoom call where the two davids and i will launch the campaign and, and share about the project this afternoon in melbourne time so you you probably missed that, but um, hopefully some of you have, were already signed up. You can sign up at readinglandscape.org. We're, we're all looking forward to sharing images and, and clips from the film footage over the next six weeks. So hopefully you get to enjoy some of that. And if you do feel as passionate or anywhere near as passionate about this project as we do, do consider heading to readinglandscape.org and throwing a few dollars at the project. Thanks so much in advance if you feel to do so. Oh, yes. One other thing I just remembered. If you use Facebook, and you'd be up for going to facebook.com slash David Holmgren Reading Landscape, which is the Facebook page. You can also get to it through the website. If you would go there right now and like make a comment or like a post or share one of the posts about the campaign, that alone would be really, really cool. So thanks if you're up for doing that. Okay, well, let's ease into the conversation with John. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did, and I will catch you in episode 64. All right, here I am. Very happy today to be in conversation with my friend, John Crothers. Thanks for joining me, John. Well, it's great to, great to hear you and great to see you, Dan. I love your get-up today. You're looking, Z, ready for a glacier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, zero degrees like We outside. both are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's both, two here. Both rugged up on the respective ends of, our, of this Zoom call. Yeah. And so um, I've, I've had the pleasure of, I had the pleasure of meeting John, I don't know, we can clarify the timing, but some, something like four or five years ago and been on an amazing journey with regard to a 
the development of a property in, in Victoria, Australia. And it was my pleasure to connect with you and, and support you over, over a segment of that journey. And today we're here for you to share your story and you've been paying attention to you know what's been going on inside and outside. And you've got some insights that you've distilled that you're happy to share with us. So I'm really excited to give listeners today some windows into the world of process, um, part of which has been your experience of working with me, but more broadly, the, the things you've experienced and discovered and noticed along the way. So thanks for being here. And if you could start with a bit of introduction so we can get to know you and then maybe bring the focus to the property that you're engaged with, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Dan. We, uh, we acquired a property in central Victoria in about 2017. I was just, at that stage, we were still living in, in Melbourne and I was in the process of retiring from a sort of a, from a corporate and cons- consulting career. And my wife and I had a bit of an epiphany about having lived very briefly in central Victoria. And we decided that the right decision for us was not to return to Melbourne, but to stay in central Victoria. That process took about two years to unpack for us to land back again. But we acquired the 70-acre former grazing property in advance of moving back up here. I guess for your listeners to help, perhaps help them understand or visualise the land, it's a rolling sort of property that straddles a tributary of the Loddon River in central Victoria. It's got some beautiful paddocks and it sits primarily on sedimentary clay loam soil. Some of it quite fertile. There's a beautiful little seasonal creek that sort of runs through it. And maybe a bit over 10% of it is covered by box and gum eucalypts, very little understory. And there's small patches here and there of kangaroo and wallaby and spear grass. Those are the remnants of what existed before white settlement. And I guess the history of the land since then is, you know, 200 years of grazing and livestock management on the land, which I guess sadly left it a bit devoid of the right vegetation and in a relatively poor state. Fortunately, the land avoided the worst ravages of alluvial gold mining, which was quite a uh, sort of prevalent activity back in the middle of the 19th century uh, there. And I guess that's where we found the property and that's about where our vision and process started. As unprepared for that as we were, Dad. And it's probably worth sharing that... um... A lot's been happening on the surface and and a, and a lot kind of underground. And and to me, that it feels like there's recently been a a new a new sprout, so to speak, has been shooting up. And you've just done a major round of earthworks. And there's a really beautiful video clip you've put together that um, you're happy for us to share on the show notes. And so it feels like the the project's crossed some sort of line. There's been a lot of a lot of lead up, and and it's an exciting moment. And it'd be lovely to to zoom out and in and out to get a sense of the journey as a whole. So maybe you can start by sharing a little bit about how you approached the project and then move into these, these insights that emerged as, we, as you proceeded. Sure. Well, I guess I, we started the project filled with enthusiasm, but with enormous quantities of hubris, I think. We started the project, uh, which is in fact a segue under the first theme, which I think is to hasten slowly. That is the first, very first an enduring lesson that we learned out of all of this. So we we approached the property in 2017, sort of full of full of zeal and with a with an intention to determine where the house site was going to be, and we were going to be bullet a gate with that 
until we met you. And, you know, what do they say about a move of war forces and so forth? Well, fortunately, you pulled us up and we went down a different path. Yeah. And it's probably worth just mentioning, too, that initially you got in contact through Very Edible Gardens that I was part of, and my colleagues Nathan and Adam were also in the in the mix there. Yeah, well, definitely. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're listeners, in fact, one of the ways in which we found you was by shopping local. So it was, in fact, at the local cheese shop that we somebody recommended recommended Nathan, and then Nathan recommended the, the Troika that was Dan and Nathan and Adam. Yep. And that set us on a path and then four years after that path began a kind of tutorial and decision making we built the road so the road which i think you've referred to and all of the earthworks came four years after our first impulse to action it'd be great to hear more about your experience of that because i'm remembering that now that there was that sense which is not uncommon like we've got some land where are we going to put the house who's going to do what go 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 and i I remember one conversation in particular where um i was like well you know here's here's some here's some reflections in, in terms of this and that that energy shifted and it was quite amazing for me to see how much to experience how much it shifted because from there you became so immersed in the process and did so much learning and went from there, the, the bull at the gate mentality to, to really, as you say, hastening slowly. Sure. Look, I might, I might talk about the gratitude sort of of that moment, maybe a bit later on, because that was one of, that's one of the other principles, but maybe let's start with the hasten slowly idea. So I guess my encouragement would be to take your time in making decisions. Most decisions in life, particularly those that are important and I think particularly ones that I learnt that are associated with the land with which I'd had virtually no experience before we bought the property. Most of my experience have been with, you know, sort of uh, investment and business strategy and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, most of the decisions in life and particularly those associated with the land are not time crunched, although we are very prone to thinking that they are. And really all that is, is a form of cognitive bias. And I was very prone to that bias. I had a bias and still have a bias for action. I thought that we had to get in there and just start doing things. So I thought that was the kind of paradigm. You know, I had to get in there and start planning and building and constructing and doing things and making a difference is what I thought it was about. But that's just simply not the case. That is often not the case. And as Deng Xiaoping once said in a different context, we cross the river by feeling the stones. He said that of China's trajectory towards development, but I think we can all learn a little bit about that. So slowing the decision-making down is, well, it was in fact your most, one of your most important gifts, Dan, other than your courage to stand in the way of somebody who was pretty strong-willed, being me, and to ask enough questions that it gave my prefrontal cortex time to kick in And I could actually start solving problems in the right way, not in a kind of mechanistic way or project plan driven way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd mention too, that this came at a time where this name and this idea of what I'm calling living design process had, it had been around for a few years and I'd I'd worked, there was a couple of prior projects, but it was still fairly early in the journey. So it was, it was a really exciting opportunity for me to share it in a new level of clarity and that was one of the, the themes that there's times to identify in a process where it's time to go slow. 
and there's times when it's very appropriate to go fast and fall. like a bushfire you know i mean if it's a bushfire we actually don't want to be thinking the problems are we want to be acting exactly but not every problem is a bushfire yeah that's right yeah and and it often turns out to be the earlier in the process is, is a good time to really really slow down and 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 give like like i love that i love a lot of these um phrases and sayings you connect me with in the process crossing the river by feeling the stones rather than trying to map them all out in front slowing down enough to feel around and figure mm-hmm. out what the right um, stone is to move one's weight to next and so yeah on. and to continue that that kind of that metaphor i mean we all know from crossing a creek that not all the stones are visible and certainly not until we get upon them can we actually see we we can rarely pick the path across the river by seeing all the stones some of them are not visible and so that then becomes i think a useful metaphor for us Mm. to realize that we need to allow time for things to be revealed whether that is things about ourselves and how we make decisions or whether it's things about the land and the climate and the weather and what's going on yeah totally one place the metaphor just took me is sometimes this, there's a stone in front of you that seems it's a lot, it's a beautiful stone, you know, it's maybe shiny and it looks mm. really solid mm. and it's protruding from the water. It's very obvious. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's the only stone there. We mm-hmm. need to step on that stone. And it turns out that is a stone that's on a very weak foundation is going to crumble as soon as you, as yeah. you stand on it, as opposed to all these um, other possibilities. And then one gleaming beauty, well, that, that, that's, that's submerged right now that it, that is, let's say a much better <laughs> stone to be stepping yeah, on. Yeah. And I mean, you know, practical example, of that on our property and if you know people refer to the video they can they can see where the house site is now because this kind of enormous celtic sort of circle thing up one end of the up the southern end of the property you know everything that glitters is not gold and what we thought was the glittering thing that we had to proceed towards when we first got the property was to figure out where the house site was going to be and we picked a place in the, in the north and it seemed very lovely and we were going to be overlooking the creek and all sorts of other things. And that was not the right decision. That, that decision was built, as we discovered, on unstable foundations, so to speak. And we just needed, what we needed was time to let all of the decisions kind of get, or all of the information, I mean, to get unpacked. So, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's right. That was the, picking the house site too early was our example of that pebble or that rock that you said looked really attractive but it was not the stable foundation upon which to or the stable rock upon which to cross the river mm-hmm. yeah awesome awesome example okay hey, so that this is the first this is the first of these insights is hasten, hasten slowly, slowly and but, within that this but, idea of crossing the river by by it, feeling the stones yeah and just pause and think when you think a, a, a decision is time critical take time to examine whether it really is time critical or whether it's just human bias kicking in and whether, you know, for emotional or financial or all these other reasons that seem to press upon us, that we go, that we are actually persuading ourselves in the face of the facts, we are persuading ourselves that that is a time crunch decision. When subjected to that kind of fearless examination most decisions are not time crunched we are time crunched the decision is not you could ask okay is there a bushfire right now if not (laughs) can it wait a day that's right exactly sleep on it you know or maybe take six months of sleeps on it yeah it pays off Mm. i mean you know the road i mean you know we you know the process of the road and we, we sort of walked that together and discussed it and so forth. The road, which turned out to be a truly pivotal part of the, uh, of the property, which is kind of 
is uh, all part of the second principle I want to talk about, which is about making decisions that give you options. You know, the road took three years. That's not a time crunch decision. Mm-hmm. Never was. Yeah, and um, as you'll see, and I encourage you to go and check the video out, we're talking about one extremely beautiful road. Sure is. It's the Michelangelo of roads. Yep. So so maybe let me talk about the second mm, principle, which beautiful. is making decisions to give you options. And I think that brings in the idea, this is probably... I think possibly the most important one, it probably takes the longest to explain, but it brings in a couple of ideas, which I hope you'll bring me back to, um, uh, Dan, which is about best next step, and then, which is a very powerful concept, and then the scale of permanence. Mm. And I guess the other temptation, that, that this is in many ways, Dan, a podcast about temptation, and the second, I think, and major temptation after feeling that we're time crunched is to do things in a sequence, which, which it may be well-intentioned, but we do things in a sequence, which makes things harder or or more expensive to undo later. And so embedded in this is an idea that we can come back to, which is about, we need to think hard, but not over plan. And we can come back to that, I think, because master planning leads us down another path, which, is fairly problematic. So I suppose the other temptation is to do things in a sequence, which does make things harder or more expensive to undo. And I guess we could have fallen into that trap too. And the primary example of that is the beautiful and sinuous and multifunctional road that that now crosses our property kilometre from sort of end to end. And, you know, I guess fortunately, you know, the road was one of those early decisions that you sort of arrested us on. And fortunately, at that same stage, I was just starting to do my PDC. And that PDC, of course, I think as most people have do them, is a process of really learning how much you, you don't know. But it did teach me one thing, which is about the yeoman scale of permanence. And so I think what the why the road became... Yeah, let, let me go on to why the road is sort of so mm. important, I guess. If we'd put the road in the wrong place, which is where the old road on the property currently is, all manner of undoable and expensive consequences would have eventuated. Or I guess, you know, we would have put the house site in the wrong place. We wouldn't have been able to access paddocks. We would have had water running down in huge rivulets, down down paths where we didn't want, want stuff we wouldn't have been able to line our paddocks up the right way, all manner of things. I guess to put it more positively, by putting the road in the right place, we get an immensely, well, an incredibly beautiful and rewarding arrival to the house. And that's just not our, that's not just our assessment. That's the assessment of, I think, 100% of the people that have travelled that road now in the last two months they arrive at the house site now and it's not the arrival that matters. It's the journey down those curves for that kilometre, which has brought them so sort of gently and mindfully to the, to the place of rest. I guess the second thing is that by putting the road in the right place and on a one, 300, one in 300 gradient and by respecting the contours, 
we're going to be able to capture an extra megalitre of water, a megalitre or two of water, we think, in a, in a reasonably good season uh, because there's an accompanying spoon drain beside which, which accompanies the road and all of the water from one end of the property to the other is just going to drain into that and it's, it's, it's gets dropped into the, dropped into the dam. So, that's, so it's doing two jobs now. It's being a beautiful experience and it's helping us to channel and distribute water where we want it. And then the third thing, which it's done very naturally, is to structure up the property. The road runs north-south and has neatly bisected the property into kind of into two, into two halves. So, you know, making a good road decision early on gave us the right, but not the obligation, to make a whole series of other good mm. decisions. Mm. And that's why I refer to the principle as being Focus on decisions that give you big options. I guess economics has had some, you know, it's had a fair bit to do with some of my work and it informs us usefully here. Where what economics has helped us, and a couple of guys won a Nobel Prize out of it, it's helped us realise that some of the most valuable decisions we can make are the ones with the greatest uncertainty. Sometimes the easiest way to think about that is, you know, imagine a gold mine and the gold price is going up and down. Well, if you know there's a chance it's going to go up, then don't close down the mine. Mothball it, by all means. Or maybe if your listeners, one that will resonate more is and is less venal might be one around water. So if we know that there's a chance, and with climate change, it's a good chance that the you know good and bad years are going to fluctuate and we might get all of our rain all at once, then let's make decisions that allow us, if we're going to get most of our rain on 20 days a year, in violent storms, then, hey, let's pay the extra premium, give ourselves gutters that are double the size, or let's give us, or let's put in a road in the right place that allows us to do two or three things at once. So to summarise that point, look for decisions that have high option value. How do we know what those are? They're the ones with the greatest uncertainty, the greatest risk of change. And secondly, the ones where there's normally a big investment involved in doing it the first time, or secondly, a big investment involved in undoing it. It can either be a capital cost or it can be a cost of labour or whatever. So, yeah, so look for those decisions that have high option value. And I guess it's no surprise to bring that back to the, you know, couple of concepts that we were working with. You know, you said, what is the best next step? Well, there are a couple of early on ones like where we put the container cabins and, you know, a couple of other things. But, you know, what you persuaded me was that getting the road right early on was a very good best next step. And it's no coincidence if we look at P.A. Yeoman's now famous hierarchy scale of permanence that once we've accounted for weather and climate, then access being the road and water respectively, end up at number two and number one on that scale of permanence. So get the big risky decisions right. After um, climate and, and geology. Yeah. And, and don't frig around trying to kind of obsess too early on about, you know, where the wicking beds are going to be and, you know, <laughs> and, and so forth. You know, there, there's a good example or exactly where are we going to put the almond trees or anything like that because... I mean, if you try doing that day one or year one and planning all that out, it's just, it's just not helpful. Mm. It, it isn't going to lead you to the right decision. It's like 
trying to jump 20 meters to a little stone yeah. way further across the, <laughs> the river. I wanted to share, as you were speaking, a, a development of that crossing the river by feeling the stones metaphor emerged for me, which was with those early big decisions, be conscious that the stone you, you choose to put your weight on next is in that, that next step you choose to take. Part of what you were what you were saying when you said decide to keep your options open or big optionality in front of you yeah. is, is realize that it's not just about how what's the best next stone to step on. It's what what yes. does that then give you access to? And Correct. so and and and, and the, the driver example is such a great example, right? Because that, that gave you yeah. access. It kept it opened up all these beautiful possibilities. And maybe even bringing that to it, not just keep your options open, but don't lose access to the, the most beautiful, adapted, alive options. By 100%. That. Because we don't, some of those decisions need time to reveal themselves, mm. essentially. So, yeah. So, just it's the combination of hasten slowly and focus on decisions that have high option value, definitely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, and like that thing about the early on being informed by the scale of permanence, too you're often making large scale decisions that are relatively irreversible or very expensive mm-hmm. to reverse. Mm-hmm. So it's very good time to be hastening slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and I suppose an extension of that, you know, another decision which we have deferred is are we going to put livestock on the land? Mm. Well, you know, lo and behold, livestock sits somewhere down the bottom of, not surprisingly, somewhere down the bottom of, of the scale of permanence. But we, we also understand that by putting the road in, we are making some decisions about, we are committing ourselves or leaving options open either. The placement of the road leaves options open or closes them off for where paddocks and livestock might go. So the placement of the road uh, went through a number of iterations to try and optimise it for all of the options within the scale of permanence. Well, not all of them, as many as seemed reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, and we still haven't decided whether we're going to put livestock on there, but we know with the placement of the road and we and so forth. And the fact that we have refrained from putting in fencing yet, we have left open the option, but created no obligation to put livestock on the land. Mm. That's going to come further down the track. Beautiful. Well, is it, is it a good time to introduce your third insight? Um, or? Yeah, I think so. And I guess this is a pretty simple one. It's a, I think it requires short exposition but I think it's execute with intent. So not to be confused with the first or the second, which imply a level of perhaps of sort of thinking about things a lot. I think once you've decided what to do, what is your best next step, so to speak, whether it's the road or planting of trees or whatever, then I encourage your listeners to pursue that with great focus. Mm. Because I think in that moment of kind of zen mindfulness about approaching that task whatever it is there is in fact enormous learning there is enormous opportunity or i guess another way of putting it is in a world where there is an abundance of stimulus the scarcest commodity is human attention you know our smartphones and our and social media have trained us to be distractible so my encouragement is to put that to avoid the temptation The third temptation is to multitask. You know, sometimes as a result of other stuff, you've got to be doing a number of things at once. But consider the benefits, if that's available, of pursuing one best next step and honouring it. It doesn't matter whether that's putting in the wicking bed or whether it's 
planting 2,700 trees or it's managing the road project or managing the house, you know, the house build or whatever it is, that kind of honour the honour the best next step, I think. Yeah, try beautifully not to be put. distracted by it. That's as, as you, you came around to because it, when you initially said execute with intent, I was thinking, yes, ex- ex- execute with presence and intent, which you yeah. mentioned. And that because I think there can be a valorization of design relative to implementation in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's like, well, we've designed the road, the grade is digging. We'll, we'll leave the grader to finish digging. We're going to go and mm. focus on what comes next. Mm-hmm. But that idea that is so prominent for me in, in living design process that once things start happening, the game is on and that there's all these smaller decisions within the bigger decision of the roads going to go mm-hmm. you know, more or less here. There's mm-hmm. still all these tiny decisions to participate in and be actively crafting and bringing the, the beauty of what's been created and the function and everything else to the, ne- the mm. next level. And you want to stay present with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to be present with that. You know, in the same way in which a samurai sword maker wasn't, he wasn't answering his smartphone while he was trying to produce the katana blade, you know, bring that kind of focus to, I mean, we, we dodged a bullet in this respect. I mean, I sound wise after the fact, but that's easy. You know, let, let me tell your listeners a little story. We, we, as you, I think you well know, we planned out all these ideas of shelter, native shelter belts across the property and we started planting those in 2019 and you know we do i went down the path partially of this kind of master plan of where all those shelter belts were going to go and sure enough you know in 2009 we've done a good job we you know 2019 late 2019 we planted 2700 indigenous uh, native species um gum trees and a whole bunch of other casuarinas and acacia and a whole bunch of other things and was it and the, as I learned afterwards, the planting of the trees is kind of the, and the tree guarding is the easy bit. Certainly the planting of them there is the easy bit. And the bullet that we dodged was that because of COVID and because I had an injury, which I then around about the same time I had an injury that put me on crutches for three months, that arrested my impulse to the next season, the next spring, plant another 2,700, which would have then left me collectively with 5,400 trees to tend. Now, because COVID and being on crutches intervened, we skipped a season. And in skipping that season, that gave me the, the opportunity and the privilege to learn from the trees that we did plant. And as a result, uh, to really commit my attention to those. And I learned by not being distracted by having planted another 2,700, which then would have required more care and guarding and so forth, I had the privilege of working with the 85% of the seedlings that survived the first planting. And that, from that, I, have, I cannot underestimate how much I've learned from that process. So the COVID and my injury provided the occasion. Fortunately, I was just wise enough in the moment to to embrace that opportunity and say, hey, rather than feeling as though the project has been held up, actually life is pointing me towards that moment of being present and focused and not trying to parallel process these various projects, like the second or third or fourth round of planting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. Oh, totally. I remember on a Master Tree Growers course years ago, visiting all these farmers' property and pretty much everyone would say, 
planted too many trees at once because yeah. partic- particularly when they got to the age where they needed pruning, suddenly they had yeah, you know, five or 10,000 trees and they just, mm-hmm. they just couldn't, they just couldn't stay mm-hmm. on top of them. So that the idea of things like trees, yeah. you know, once a road's in and done properly, uh, maintenance drops off a fair bit. Once a tree's in and planted properly, that's when the maintenance starts and you've got a yeah. good few years of um, follow through. And there's, a, you know, there's another idea sort of embedded there too, which is sort of a vaguely related to the optionality thing. And that is obviously, which is what every sort of farmer knows, is that if you plant, there are good seasons and bad seasons. So if you roll the dice and decide you're going to plant too many all at once, well, you're rolling the dice on a good season or a bad season. We know seasons fluctuate. So, you know, depending on one's perspective, there may be, there may be advantage in spreading your risks. Mm. So not only are you spreading your, your energy, you're not spreading your energy, you are, you're making sure that by spreading the project, you can focus when you need to, but you're also taking account of an exogenous risk, which is weather and climate and what's happening. Is that, is that almost another insight? Don't, like the one about not oh, buying a fourth you can chew? Yeah, I guess so. We could, we could create a sub-theme, <laughs> which, is, which is, you know, ro- well, it's related to the optionality thing. It's kind of mm. roll the dice carefully. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Roll the dice with care, mm-hmm. I think is what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess the, if you felt ready, I guess the fourth, is a fourth idea or would you like yeah, to? Yeah, well, just, just I just want to make the note that I'd love to come back to, you made the comment about think hard, but don't over plan. I'd like to come back to that conversation around the perils of master planning and also uh, maybe it's coming anyway, but, but to uh, talk about I think there'll well. be a natural point okay. for it after the next one. All right, let's is, do it. The last two, I think, ideas are related to gratitude mm-hmm. uh, one way or the other. And I think, I think the the fourth principle is uh, have the humility to bring with you on the journey an experienced river guide. So, you know, and that really hit home to me after I did the PDC. I went into the PDC well-intentioned, but with the kind of the, you know, I was pretty overconfident and I thought at the end of the PDC, I thought as I was going to the PDC, oh, this would be great, I'll get a whole lot of answers and I've read David Holmgren's, you know, version 1.0 or Holmgren Mollison's version 1.0 and so forth. And I thought, oh, well, this can't be all that hard. And, you know, I think as a freshly minted PDC graduate, I think when you approach it the right way, you realise how little you know about the topic. And I think is hopefully is, you know, I guess the way I think about a PDC is it's a really useful Oh, as often taught, I think, it is a really useful toolkit of ideas and domain specialties. But within each of those things, whether it's building a passive solar house or whether it's planting crops or whether it's planting, you know, doing revegetation or whether it's managing livestock or any of these things, they have their own learning curves. And I think having... I come back to that point about having a, an experienced river guide and that is somebody that can help you help you navigate those, those various domain areas. And I think more importantly, this was very true in your case, Dan, somebody who can, which is I think the essence of the problem, and that is how do we design? 
what is the process that we adopt for design and what strengths and weaknesses does the individual doing it bring to that equation? And, um, you know, I presented myself to you, Dan, as a very enthusiastic but flawed and somewhat talented but also flawed individual. So I was fortunate to meet somebody who was wise and strong and didn't try and overload me with facts but instead turned the, turned the kind of Socratic focus on what I was doing and how I was processing decisions. And I, you know, I guess the, you know, what do they say? The teacher arrives when the student is ready. Well, you know, fortunately we bumped into one another. Hmm. And I think your, your focus not on information but on decision-making was, it was so helpful. It allowed me which is now, I'll then go on to the fifth principle mm -hmm. in time, but it that then allowed me to access information in the right way. You know, what did Sir Edmund Hillary say? I think he said something, it is not the mountain that we conquer, but ourselves. Um, or, and Socrates said something very similar quite, you know, quite a long time before that, which is, you know, I count him braver who conquers his desires than conquers his enemies. So the first, the first battle is with self. And I think I can only speak personally, but I think it's probably true of many people that an experienced river guide, somebody who can mentor you through the decision-making, particularly in an early, early stage, who can help make the decision-maker resourceful and leave them resourceful and confident is invaluable to the process. So that's my fourth learning or fourth principle. Mm-hmm. As, as you were talking and it was it was a real a real pleasure and honor to have your trust and you know because I, I i was i don't know maybe i came across as, as knowing what i was doing entirely but you know i was i was very much learning and growing as well and and in process myself but as you were talking one one shift i remember was i would say that there was certainly part of you that in that expert epistemology like i well you know i need the right expert with the right information to tell me what to do or ideally to do it for me and then this incredible shift, it was almost like it was already there, this huge willingness inside yourself that just yeah. needed an excuse to emerge, which was like, hey, I can be my own expert. And I'm really excited to spend months and years learning about trees and and, yeah. and shifting my relationship with contractors and so on. So rather than being a passive consumer of their expertise, I'm actually a very active participant and and you know, the whole yeah. that, that whole shift, which which it seems to me is now very thoroughly infused the remainder of the process. And just yeah. just one side comment on that too. I was one thing I loved about it too was was the idea of the honor of being able to act as a river guide, but also being able to make myself redundant as soon as possible. You know, over the months or whatever, you you soon became your own your own river guide. Mm, yeah, it probably took I'd say um, I'd probably say it took twelve months. I think mm. twelve to yeah, I think it probably took about twelve months. But I had to graduate i had to earn the right to become sort of independently resourceful mm. but i think you know i think your method i think that's why i probably gravitated to your well that's why i found such congruence with your method i think because you know having worked in the management consulting industry for or or hired consultants for 20 odd years as a when you know when i was a ceo you know the the, the world abounds with professionals who are trying to make them embed themselves in your wallet the very best of them 
don't try and do that. What they are is kind of is teachers and enablers and people who try and make you resourceful. And that's mm. what I that's what I sensed in you and what was demonstrated uh, frequently throughout our engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there you are to your listeners. Go find an experienced river guide. I, do, I it, love- do it, do it today. <laughs> I do. I, I love, I love the language, the idea of river guide, you know, from designer or even facilitator mm. or consultant to, mm. you know, who's, who's my, who's, who's my river guide? Where, where, mm. where do I find the guide mm. that's appropriate now? And if you don't want one, then pick multiple, mm. you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. it's all, yeah. it's all fine. And, you know, when I said do it today, what I kind of meant is, you know, better than in 20 years time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Create a panel of river guides if that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. All right. Is it time to, to introduce the fifth? Well, message? yeah. Or would you like to? Sure. I mean, we can go on to that. And then maybe you might want to ask me about the other topic. Which yeah. I've got a few questions I'd love bit. to, yeah, to yeah, ask sure. you about. Yeah. So I think the fifth one, which is related to the fourth one, but I think worthy of worthy of elaborating is that I think gratitude repays with enormous dividends. I think it's, it's kind of related to that contractor concept. I think that if you, if it was a first step when dealing with your property or dealing with the land, if you accept that others have probably trod this path before and they, for example, could be farmers or ecologists or whatever that have lived in that area and seen a lot more than you could ever have simply by virtue of the fact that they have lived there and not somewhere else. And as a second function, because it is simply not possible to achieve mastery, true mastery in a multitude of things, or at least the number of human beings that have achieved that are are very, very few. The rest of us mere mortals achieving mastery in, you know, one or two things is probably true mastery mm-hmm. is probably about right. So if you accept that that notion with humility, then there's got to be a whole lot of other people around that depending on the aspect of the property that you're trying to deal with or the land or the or whatever, then there's a whole lot of other people that you can work with. And what I guess I found the gratitude thing is having the humility to work with them, having the wherewithal to show that you appreciate what they have done with regular and ongoing gratitude. It could be a simple card that you send them or a pot of honey you give them or anything. All that stuff just comes back in spades. And in fact, for your for your listeners, if they go to well on the on the Vimeo site where I have currently hosted the video which your uh, viewers and listeners will be able to see, there's probably 30 odd people that are thanked on that video. So Dan Palmy are obviously one of them, but there are 29 others there. There were, there were not so many river guides, but there were multiple people who, who played a part in us making good decisions and having the, you know, I think thanking those people and finding different ways to thank them over the journey is incredibly important. And, and they, that comes back in spades, you know, they help you again or they introduce you to somebody else. So and it kind of connects me back to the, to, the, uh, to the process you took Rosie and I through where we 
imagined and then drew in this kind of solar system these ideas around what the what the property was going to mean for us and one of the really important things on that that you helped ground us in or you helped us locate i should say mm. was the idea that community was going to be an incredibly important part of what we did and so you know 30 or more people have contributed to what has happened on that property even at this incredibly early stage and i would like to think that every one of them, if I bumped into them in the street, would would say unbidden that we had shown them gratitude for what they've done. Mm-hmm. And then a simple way of doing that is to put their names underneath the video. You know, it's just a simple role of honour, as it were, mm-hmm. honour roll. Yeah, so fifth, fifth principle is show gratitude it repays with dividends. Beautiful, John. Um, and I can vouch to feeling, you know, really nourished. If I put them all in one place, I'd have a have a stack about that thick of these beautiful little postcards <laughs> that would appear in my letterbox right. after significant right. moments in the journey. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah. So there you are. They're the, they're the five principles. Hasten slowly. Make decisions that give you options. Execute mindfully and with intent. Find an experienced river guide or two. And then the fifth one is that show gratitude because it, show, it repays you with dividends. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, which is a segue, I think, onto our next topic, you will find little or, yeah, you won't find those in your traditional book about planning or about possibly about permaculture design, Dan. Um, mm. These mm. are meta These are meta principles. They are not, it is not a problem-solving method. It is more about mindset than it is about a Gantt chart. Yeah, thanks so much for saying that. That, that You're right, that's where I wanted to go. I was, I was so let's go there. Let's go there. So, <laughs> let's so go I'm, there. Because I'm, I'm really coming into a time when, you know, I've, I've been relatively quietly exploring and developing this stuff and my felt experience of this is that this is a, a radically it's a radical departure from the status quo conventional approach to designing and creating anything on a number of levels and I was I was thinking you know it's for me it was it took me a long time to even see there was any other option and for some listeners I imagine it would be possible to still to sit in a more conventional place and oh these are all nice flavors um, mm-hmm. and yet there's some pretty some pretty big differences there and I'd love to go into some of those so some some one of them for example is around what you said about thinking hard but not over planning and um and also the relationship of thinking and feeling in the in the process so it'd be neat to hear what comes up for you on on those fronts the relationship of intuition and rationality and also how that relates to, to yeah the, sure the, the way that planning and des- and actually sketching designs and all that f- yeah um, feeds so into i think the the, i think a moment of dissonance for me was before i started the pdc i was looking through you know, Mollison and Holmgren's book and then a sort of version two and a few other PDC books. I was trying to somewhat obsessively do my pre-reading before the course started. And I remember this moment of dissonance and I was looking at one of these books and here was this perfectly formed, beautifully watercoloured 2D plan of um, of a property. And I remember looking at it and thinking, hang on, you're saying these guys did this right at the beginning? How did they arrive at that? You know, like, 
how do you get all that knowledge right at the beginning? How do you get it right? You know, I have formed the view that through personal experience, my own experience in business and stuff, is that you just can't master plan. I think General Eisenhower said something about it, something he said, you know, in, um, in war planning is essential, but in battle plans are useless. So I think, although that's a, that's a metaphor about war, I think we get what he's saying. He's saying that, you know, you can kind of, the process of planning is kind of important, but we have to be able to let go of the plan when it no longer serves its purpose, essentially. So there's no harm in sketching a few things down and doing that stuff, but we simply don't have all of the information that we need at the beginning to make all of the right decisions forever. It's just not, it's not possible. It's illogical. And then to bring the idea of rationality into it, you know, we need to understand and accept that as human beings, you know, neuroscience has shown us in the last 10 or 15 years, demonstrated amply to us through research in the last 15, 20 years, that many of our decisions, perhaps up to 50% of our decisions, are informed by what's happening to us emotionally and various physiological effects on our body. You know, the, the classic assumption in economics is every economic student goes through in their first lecture is that decision-making is rational. Well, um, no, it's not. And, uh, you know, we need to be alive to what is happening in our body. One um, moment in the process just, just cropped up for me. Um, and, and I remember this was a really delicious aspect of the experience and part of the, the difference in my experience of moving from more of a rationally driven master planning approach, which even if we're not aware of it, tends to be hijacked by images from outside every step of the way to entering the ongoing journey of this piece of land and, and your um, emerging connection with it and getting a sense for it as a whole. And part of how we did that initially in immersing and its dynamic was inviting ourselves not to think so much and just wander around and see what we felt. And yeah. remember that, that day when Nathan and you and I walked around 100%. and there's just some phenomenal coincidences, you know. 100%. And I think, you know, that raised another sort of feeling for me, which is that that wasn't just an exercise. That was an exercise in learning to listen to, you know, and we we all split up separately and all went our separate ways and came back 45 minutes later and sat under the gum tree and stuff, which was a great exercise and just tuning in solely to what our senses and our emotions were telling us about the land. But what that also laid the foundation for, for me, was that, you know, I have probably, I don't know, in a, me in a measurable number of times since then, perhaps thousands of times, I've walked across that property. So, you know, that day that we spent tuning in, at that point, I'd perhaps only walked across the property or parts of it 10 times, you know. There was hubris again. I thought I knew the property. I'd, you know, four years later and having traversed it thousands of times and examined different blades of grass and laying on my back and just looked at birds or felt, you know, felt the first frost in the morning or any of those just truly sublime, beautiful, natural human moments. Today, I say I know nothing, you know. Back then, I thought I knew what the property was doing, you know, what was mm. going on, on on the land. You know, I was about to say my land, but the land of which we are currently stewards would be a better way of putting it. Yeah, so, yeah, tune in, people. Tune into what's going on inside you and how that 
how you are responding to different parts of the land. It will serve you well. How would you describe what, what comes up for you now if I ask you about the more significant shift that, or the way that you've seen yourself grow and evolve in terms of you as a being? What comes up? I think the first one is humility. I'm a pretty confident person. I'm somebody, I guess, that sort of in a debate or in the room, you know, when problem solving, I tend to put myself sort of out there. I back myself in. Um, I'm not saying that I was arrogant, some might, but I needed to relearn the wisdom of being more graceful and more humble, both about what I knew and what I could do. Mm. So I think that's the first change. Um, I think the second change was, you know, despite the fact that planning had served me well in my professional career, there are limits to planning. I think that was the second thing that, so it was a kind of cognitive shift. Um, I think the first one was more a shift around maybe values or emotional self-regulation maybe. Yeah, so the second one was one of um, perhaps a more cognitive shift. The third one I think was, although I've always loved the outdoors, there was a tendency to, you know, done backcountry skiing and mountain climbing and various other things in my life, bushwalking, various other things. There was a kind of tendency to see that as, as separate, as compartmentalised, that, hey, you know, I'm in the city now and then now I'm going to do this kind of outdoor recreational activity. So now we've, and then I, you know, you put that in the box and you come back home. So I think the third thing that shifted for me was an awareness mm. where that what I needed and wanted and drew sustenance from was all around me and whether it was in walking through the botanical gardens or whether it was on my property or whatever, just, you know, stopping and stopping or not stopping being just more mindful about the natural world around me. And well, there's three, mm. there's three shifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's three. Beautiful. Beautiful. As, as you're talking, I'm getting all these flashbacks and <laughs> I'm, I'm holding myself because like, there's, so, there's so many details, right? Like the fact that you worked, when you weren't working on the site itself, which was the primary medium of work, you were working on a three-dimensional model you made much more, you know, just all these little details. Um, maybe, maybe, let's see let's see how this all lands for, for listeners and if you're open to, because, and you, you, you kept this incredible journal. So there's a, it's an, it's an incredibly well-documented journey. There's so many, you know, kind of practical yeah. details that we could maybe explore yeah. on another occasion. And that's a really interesting, look, look I, I haven't actually, I gave up the journal. Well, I haven't okay. given it up. I, I stopped the journal. I think the journal sort of served its purpose, but I found that it was a way of keeping me mindful. I think at the beginning it was, hey, I didn't want to lose, you know, this, this kind of, I was a porous sponge intellectually and I just wanted to sort of pull this stuff in and I was worried that I'd forget it all and so forth. So, you know, as you said, I, for 18 months or whatever, I kept this incredibly detailed journey, a journal on, on the cloud of, you know, pictures and words and meetings with people. A lot of it's about meeting people and decision-making discovery. And I think after there was a kind of convergence where my own maturation and sort of learning after a while it started the process of keeping the journal another way of putting it was immensely valuable at Mm. the beginning because it kept me kept me open and kept me mindful and i'm probably now i'm journaling but in a slightly different way i'm kind of you know i'm assembling all these photographs and 
you know, we're getting drone footage done and I'm thinking about a video and how to a documentary and how to tell a short documentary and how to mm. tell it in parts and stuff. So I think I'm journaling, but in a slightly less obsessive way, maybe. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the journal. Yeah. Did its job though. Mm. I, I still love it. I feel like, oh, he's written another <laughs> 10 pages. <laughs> yep. There's some OCD there, that's for sure. Hey, one thing that comes up right now, we're just we're just about in, to enter a in-house crowdfunding push for the Reading Landscape documentary film, and and of course David Holmgren came to your property, and as part he of this did. process we're talking about, he he um he led us around and we read the, we read the landscape together. Be neat just to 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 hear you speak to what you recall of your experience of of, of doing that. Yeah, I think um, I wasn't sure what to expect mm-hmm. when. So it wasn't that long after that first experience of walking around the land and tuning into tuning into our emotions. And, you know, there were other points at which in the normal PDC way I'd been set the idea of, you know, these ideas of layers, if you like, you know, spend some time tuning into where the, you know, tuning in where the, uh, you know, the, the, the wind vectors are and where's the, where's the fire threat coming from and what are the views we like and don't like and, you know, what are, what are our feelings, you know, and you stack the idea of stacking these things up mm. as discrete layers and then you peer through the layers back to the landscape and kind of, you know, intuit then what are the best decisions to make. Mm. I think what was so sort of humbling and so remarkable about, what was it, about an hour and a half maybe, uh, walk with David where there was a tribe of us walking after him as he sort of, strode mindfully but confidently across the 28 hectares was how much I had missed and how able he was and how fantastic the outcomes or insights were when you follow somebody who is able to parallel process these things because he's not seeing it in layers. He is seeing it in moments of full integration where yeah where he is he will settle upon a rock or a fold in the land and he's seeing it from multiple perspectives and i guess the outcome of that for me is i can see there's a lifetime of mastery in that so what i can do is just sort of how how can i action that well I can, in the moment, listen to him, which was fairly difficult because there was a lot of stuff being there unpacked, being unpacked. But I guess I can take up a little of his, you know, of what he was trying to show us. That is, be in the moment and try and process as much information as you as you can, or be open, not process, maybe open, be open to what is in front of you. And so I've tried to channel that in little ways as I walk across the land uh, now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be- lovely to hear that description. It, it's an integrated view mm. in the moment, is what I believe he he offers. Yeah, or yeah. somebody like him offers. Yep. yep. Mm. Wow, John, it's it's so much fun to reconnect and. Oh, Dan, to, it's beautiful. To dive in, yeah, yeah. And I'm I really encourage folk to check out the video because it's 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 re- really is breathtaking to me how how beautiful what's emerging there 
And then as you learn more about the reality of the process and that it's your process that you, Rosie and yourself uh, are stewarding or, or are, are steering the process, um, it's not something that's been done for you by a bunch of experts, but you've, mm. you've been supported in by contractors and, and other yeah. folks that have now become friends. Yeah, it's been a kind of a contact sport, I suppose, to kind yeah. of, um, you know, to, to use that comparison. Um, and I guess, look, if it's okay, Dan, I'd just like to give a shout out to Peter Watts, who is the, uh, who's the videographer and editor. Mm. Um, he's, a really, he's a really beautiful and generous uh, and visually talented man. He lives in central Victoria now. He spent quite a bit of time in commercial television and stuff with the ABC and Channel 9 and stuff, I understand. And, you know, he, he kind of got it. And that's why I think the video is so beautiful. He is somebody who has spent years seeing visual patterns in places. And so when he lifted the drone up, he just, uh, and he started asking me, hey, is this what you want? I could see what was going on his screen. I just said, I just said, Peter, I got nothing to, you know, and I was trained as a photographer and I just said, Peter, I got nothing to teach you. You got, I just disappeared for half an hour, an hour, and he just filmed his stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. um, if there are any of you in central Victoria who are looking to record what you're doing, then I couldn't encourage you enough to think about Peter. Awesome. Yeah, well, if he's got a, a website. There you go. There's a moment of gratitude. We'll track for it down. You. Yeah, there you go. And it's, it's at the end of the video now, so I've put mm-hmm. his... I'll put his credit at the end. Great. And, and it, in terms of people that might be interested to learn more or follow up, are you, do you have, or are you anticipating have any, having any, well, I don't know, website or, or anything like that or? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I, you know, I put aside a domain name and a couple of other things a while ago. And I think, I think for a while I thought I've got, I've got very little to say. Mm. And I think that was probably the humility speaking. Um, I just felt that I hadn't learned enough for things to be valuable. I would say it's probably going to be, look, another maybe three or four months before we get website up and a little maybe an Instagram Instagram thing. Um, mm. Yeah, I'd like to think that. But, look, you know, if people want to, you know, want to reach out, then um, I'm sure we can sort of arrange something for that, Dan. I can give you I'm happy to be a filter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It could be, well, it could be useful. And I, I mean, I guess, you know, just on that, you know, we're kind of pretty busy doing what we're doing and it's not that I want to discourage people. It's just that I have to, you know, to continue the good work that you helped me start, Dan, I need, you know, we need some sort of focus. So we're, mm. so we're happy to hear from people, but yeah, it'd be great if you could, um, if you could play a bit of an intermediary. For sure, yeah. So if you go to makingtermacotstronger.net, go to the contact page and write me an email and if it's good enough, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll forward it to John. <laughs> and particularly if you can answer the quiz questions about what That's we've right. just talked about. Yeah, if, you, if you can ask some deep enough, yeah. um, exciting enough questions and, after listening to this. And look, in a you know, more positive and inclusive note, I guess, you know, we, we plan, you know, probably in a couple of years, I think, to, you know, maybe have a place where people can sort of camp out and then, you know, we can run some workshops and stuff like that if, uh, you know, if people are interested. But we're hastening slowly, Dan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it was beautiful, Dan. Really great. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was really, really, really happy, you know, real, a, a joyful experience. And with all its excitement and moments of, you know, like <laughs> um, frank communication and all the rest, you know, it's a really beautiful experience, and it's just so thrilling to to feel you, you coming into your own there, and, and to and to sense what's emerging. 
Yeah. Hmm. So thank you. And I encourage your listeners to find when they do find a river guide, make sure they are robust. Yep. Because you need those robust conversations, Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's God, right. God, yeah. God knows where I would have ended up if you hadn't, if you hadn't <laughs> pushed back hard. <laughs> yep. I would have got um, lost in the mangroves or something. Well, yeah, it, it, anyone's free to get in touch to, to explore this idea. I yeah. almost feel like writing something about this idea of, 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 of being, of, being a ro- of what, what it means to be a robust river guide. Yeah, beautiful. 